Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it means the absolute world to have your support. What are you waiting for? Become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Welcome to Breaking Points. This is not Counterpoints. You're not uh, You're not being deceived. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so I guess I'm Ryan Grimm. I'm filling in for Sagar on this side. This is Crystal Ball. <laughs> this, is Crystal, this is Crystal Ball over here. I've been sharpening my anti-weed talking points. I'm going to fill in for Sagar respectfully. I would love to hear you argue against weed. I would love to hear it. A lot of people are like, feeling high right now. They're like, wait a minute. It just said that's Crystal and Sagar, and that's definitely not Crystal and Sagar. <laughs> yeah. We have a big show uh, to get through today, uh, we're, and we're going to start with uh, China. So the, pro- the protests in China are yielding significant results. The Chinese government is saying that it's going to be rolling back its zero COVID policy. If you could put up A1 here, and also we can promise that no digital picket lines were crossed in the cropping of this New York Times article because <laughs> it was done yesterday before the Times walk out. They did walk out, right? Like today is their digital strike? Yeah, although admittedly I would, that's a digital picket line I would probably cross. Oh wait, if I'm if I'm representing Sagar, he would have walked right across that yeah. picket line, right? Well, no, Sagar's pro-worker, but is he? Would he well, yeah, but you can be but, pro-worker but without pro supporting this union. particular guild, yes. So you pick and choose your unions. No, Solidarity says you gotta support any union <laughs> for does, any reason. It does, it does, it yeah. does. So anyway, so as the New York Times and many others are reporting, uh, that Xi Jinping, Xi, Chairman Xi Jinping, under pressure, uh, is announcing that he's softening some of his uh, zero COVID regulations. This comes after protests had broken out around a, a Foxconn factory, but then, but also spread all across the country. Mm. There were so th- there was a lot of attempt to kind of minimize it to a labor dispute between the workers and, and Foxconn, one that revolved pr- partly around pay par- and significantly around conditions. Like the workers there were saying that they were that, hey, you, you say you've got the zero COVID policy, but we're actually 
it's not, these aren't completely safe conditions. All at the same time, there are these draconian uh, uh, rules being put into place where you're locking uh, workers in their dorms and yep. en- endlessly, uh, you know, just, just ha- handing uh, kind of noodles through the door. Like it pr- well, the recent wave of protests started because Uyghur Muslims were actually forcibly locked into a building that caught fire and 10 of them died. Mm-hmm. Um, at least, right. At least we, 10. Yeah. Right. And so this has been a huge part of China's zero COVID policy. And we've seen some striking videos over the last couple of years, literally of buildings being sealed when there are breaks, mm-hmm. when there are outbreaks. And, uh, you know, it's, it seemed like the dam was starting to open up. It was really like this, the foundation was being cracked. And in fact, it seems that that's also true. Now, an interesting element of, of this is that there's a question of whether this is a response to the, the protests or a response to the business interests that have been hampered by the protests. The, the reason I think it's the protests is that that's the much more proximate event. The the business interests have been getting hurt by this. For, uh, so actually, I mean, there's two sides to it. On the one hand, where, where zero, zero COVID has been successful, it has allowed entire cities and regions to operate like New Zealand was, like with no COVID, mm-hmm. like actually zero COVID. And so in those cities, it was actually good for business because everybody's just going about business as completely as usual. But then if a couple COVID cases would come in there, then the entire thing would get locked down and you'd see entire section of, sections of the economy and then the global economy kind of grind to a halt. And you were seeing that in fits and spurts over the last two years, and it didn't persuade Xi to change course. Whereas be, you know, in the, at the Fifth Party Congress, he again re- reaffirmed his support for uh, zero COVID. And since then, uh, the strikes, I think, really rocked the country. And I think it was because they turned from kind of issue-focused ones to party and government-focused ones. You you started seeing, for the first time, a lot of down with the CCP, down with Xi. Mm -hmm. China, historically, uh, since uh, Tiananmen, let's say, uh, has has developed what I've seen people call— it sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not quite what they call responsive authoritarianism. What that means is you don't get any say in, in the way that this country is run democratically. This is an authoritarian government. We're the authority. We tell you what's up. But we're going to allow some protests. Hmm. And so if you don't like the construction of a mall in this particular part of your town, you could protest that. And Chinese do. They're like. Those types of protests are common around the country. And often, very cleverly, what the Chinese government will then do is say, you know what, we're with you, protesters, and we're sacking the local official here. And they'll make a scapegoat of a, of a local party apparatchik, they'll, and they'll make some reforms around uh, that protest. And then, then, then they might punish the person that organized the protests, just to show that, just to keep people confused about you know, where the lines are. When, what, what you're able to do. Whereas, so that's why they call it responsive authoritarianism, which is kind of ridiculous, but also like if we're going to study authoritarianism, we should identify the different flavors of it. This, this became different. This was like, we're not trying to get you to like stop a dam project. We want the entire government to fall. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, uh, you, you, ha- you can either kind of violently crack down around the country, which they did some of, uh, you can round up all of the people that you catch in your mass surveillance, which they did some of too, but then you can also kind of give a little bit. 
Yeah, so Xi Jinping had just doubled down on this. You mentioned mm-hmm. that he was just reelected by the party Congress to a third term uh, just back in October. And it was a show of force. It was a doubling down on zero COVID in particular. And now The Guardian is reporting last week road and rail shipments in China dropped by 36 percent. Chinese shipping to the U.S. has continued mm-hmm. to decline and is down 34 percent compared with earlier just this year. Car manufacturers are seeing a shortage of supply from China. Um, this is like Apple was the really big case study because of what happened at the Foxconn plant in central China. And a lot of folks saw that there was a, an employee who described it to CNN tragically as, quote, a river of blood. And there were videos that managed to escape the country of people being beaten uh, just for protesting the zero COVID policy mm-hmm. in uh, Foxconn's plan. That is the number one supplier of iPhone parts. And uh, that has caused a huge problem with Apple's holiday sales. It's like a 30% decline in iPhone supply, something to that extent um, right now. And Apple has had this really friendly, long-standing relationship with China. And so to your point, Ryan, is it the case that it's it's, it's the business interest being impacted by the protests. So protests of zero COVID, this this lack of just sort of going along with it, mm-hmm. saying it's going to end at some point, it's going to end at some point. Well, now the Chinese economy is really bad. People have been enduring these waves of lockdowns for a couple of years. Xi Jinping has doubled down on it. And so then you see this bubble to the surface and Xi Jinping realizes the supply chains that come out of China that he has benefited from, profited from, and has, has tried to use to stabilize his authority and society, um, that's, if, if you put a crack in that foundation, right. then I think it all starts to crumble. It's sort of a house of cards. Um, if, the, if the supply chain, if having that much control over sort of the global supply chain is the foundation, um, then you start to see problems. And I feel like that's where the crack started to grow. Yeah, and it cuts to the foundations of the social contract that the CCP has with the Chinese population, which is we're going to oversee the greatest economic expansion in world history. Mm -hmm. We're going to pull a half a billion people out of poverty. We're going to do some of it by tinkering with poverty statistics, but we are genuinely going to transform this country. You compare what China looked like in the 1950s to what it looks like today, it's, it's, you know, it outpaced any any type of industrialization, industrialization or modernization ever. The cities, for sure. In world in world history, and even and even in a lot of the rural areas, you're they're they're starting to get some of the basic comforts of, of civilization that that let's say like rural areas of Russia mm-hmm. don't don't have right now, and so uh, keeping a kind of a rural population that is seeing massive economic growth happy is a little different than now that you have this significant middle-class population in mm. China, which has, which is growing up with expectations of things continuing to get better. That might sound very familiar here to the United States. You know, every, every generation in the United States after World War II felt like, all right, things are gonna be better for my kids and things are gonna be better for their kids. Mm-hmm. And when people stopped having that faith, that's when you started seeing a lot of discontent here in the United States. And so I think she's very nervous about the, the potential of that to then feed into the unrest. And actually the sun, take it for what it's worth, it's this tabloid, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> you, you've seen other reports like this coming from people who are claiming some connection yeah, to, the, uh, you know, to, the, to the Communist Party orbit saying that you know, she is at risk here, is, is significantly at risk. Like people, this is, and this is coming just weeks after people talked about him as you know, boss for life. 
right. that he was going to run run China, you know, on, as as long as he wanted. And now all of a sudden, you have people speculating that because of all of the turmoil, who knows? Now I'm curious for your t- for your take on this. Uh, mod- modelers, uh, epidemiological modelers, and we can put up A3 are estimating that if the w- a winter wave hits and you have rapidly eased COVID restrictions. You could see up to a, up to a million deaths. They talked about some twenty thousand a day or something in in th- in three major cities. Uh, a significant part of this is on Xi, mm-hmm. because if you are going to do a zero COVID policy, while at the same time preparing your population to ease out of a zero COVID policy into a post COVID zero world, then. It, the, the civil liberties restrictions that are so draconian, welding people in their house, p- taking uh, ch- toddlers away from their kids, would not be justified. But you could at least see the logic behind it. Mm-hmm. Like, we're going to lock this down while we get ready for the next phase. They didn't do the get ready for the next phase part. Vaccine uptake among even the elderly uh, is, is trash, which is, I, I can't understand that. How, can, how do they have the authority to weld somebody into their apartment, but they can't? figure out how to get old people to take the jab. Yeah. Uh, and their hospital situation, their public health situation, uh, contact tracing, like the basics are not set up for a, a wave of the type that they might get if they significantly relax zero COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the other thing is they have, from what we know, I mean, again, the, a model like that is really difficult for me because there's so much we don't know about the Chinese population in COVID. Um, what we have an inkling of is that immunity is lower and that the vaccine is slightly less effective. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't doubt that. And they're but, older. But at the same yeah. time, we have seen, so these are like very draconian lockdown mm-hmm. policies. Um, and I don't know that we have a, a perfect apples to apples of what we experienced here. Um, that said, we're even seeing this being implemented unevenly already. So this is from CNN. In Beijing, authorities on Wednesday said a health code showing a negative COVID-19 test would still be required for dining in at restaurants or entering some entertainment venues, which is in conflict with the national guidelines that were released on Wednesday, which was, it was a 10-point plan keep some some script some of the restri- restrictions um, but get rid gets rid of things like mass testing um, and allowing people if you have a positive case to quarantine at home rather than at work and again some of the images from the Foxconn factory where people were forced to live between their shifts were uh, I mean it was squalid that's yeah. that's at best squalid um, so this is all hard to it's it's hard to actually totally know what's happening in China but we do know at the very least, this is a dramatic pivot, um, and we know that the economic implications for the United States and for China, uh, for Europe and for China, are on the line. And the way that this progresses um, could really have an effect on the supply chains. It could, yeah, uh, yes, and also, uh, if if they're not careful, will 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 lead to, as they described, a, a wave of death right. because they're not they're not prepared for it. Like th- this 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 could be done in a responsible and and safe way, as, or safe as possible. It's still a pandemic. There are no good uh, options. But it doesn't seem like that. And there might have been good options in the beginning, but uh, the Chinese government didn't do it. And that goes back to uh, that, that term, responsive authoritarianism. Responsiveness is relative. Like a, a genuinely responsive government uh, would would be able to adapt to public to public pressure faster, mm-hmm. and to be and to be able to then would be willing and would be willing to. If it, right. if it was truly responsive. Right. Literally right. responsive. Right, actually responsive, yeah. 
Speaking of China, let's move on to Elon Musk. Uh, Tesla surely will be impacted by what we just talked about. Oh, yes. COVID, a big factory oh. over in Wuhan. Uh, Elon Musk, uh, if we could put up the uh, first... Grab, B1. Yeah, the, the B1 here. Um, some tweets from Matt Taibbi, who has obviously been going uh, through the so-called Twitter files since last week. And this, uh, again, the Twitter files have... Twitter completely divided and has the media completely divided with so many folks saying, um, this is nothing. This is Matt Taibbi totally overhyping this information um, and acting. I saw one tweet saying basically this was the right's version of Russiagate. Um, and of course, it's not just the right that's concerned about this. Uh, and it's not anywhere near the, the massive conspiracy that Russiagate was. It's indeed an extremely important story. Now, what it's, what's important about it is that it, it does confirm a lot of what people suspected. So it's not entirely new so much as it is filling in the background of what a lot of people, like the broad contours, I think were understood and were known uh, when it came to Twitter suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story in October of 2020, the New York Post story, which if you remember, you couldn't even direct message to somebody <laughs> the day that it came out. You, if you tried to direct message it to a friend, you literally couldn't do that. So it's now become uh, clear as Taibbi reported yesterday, that Jim Baker, who, what does Taibbi describe him as? Something of a Zelig of right, yeah. Russiagate, yes. um, who went from the FBI after overseeing Russian collusion, goes from the FBI, he was involved in the Alpha Bank hoax, which The Intercept at the time, I think mm -hmm. it was Lee Fong, had yeah. a great debunking of while the rest of the media was taking the bank, that the Trump campaign had a direct link to the Russian Alpha Bank, um, which was supposed to be kind of a smoking gun showing the collusion, et cetera, Made absolutely et no sense. Like they had set some server up in the Trump organization yes. that was like, sending secret messages back to Moscow or something. It was full-blown, like, tinfoil hat then, and it was being repeated by media outlet after media yeah. outlet, um, but it turned out to not be true. And uh, Jim Baker was involved, and uh, I believe he set up the meeting where Michael Sussman tried to plant that story. Um, and turns out, this is the news that Taibbi broke, uh, Jim Baker was overseeing the release of the Twitter files uh, without the knowledge of new CEO, Elon Musk. And uh, Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss, I guess, uncovered this as they were looking through the files. It said Jim. And it said Jim. And Barry said, who, Jim who? And they're like, Baker. Like, oh. Oh, that guy. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it turned out that's what was going on here. Let's put up B2. Jack Dorsey, former CEO, gets in on it, and he says... Uh, if the goal is transparency to build trust, why not just release everything without filter and let people judge for themselves, including all discussions around current and future actions? Make everything public now. And Elon Musk replied to at Jack and said, most important data was hidden from you too, and some may have been deleted, but everything we find will be released. That is key because it means what we have been learning from the Twitter files has gone through this filter of somebody who's uh, malfeasance. Who's motivated, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, even what we have seen, I think made Jim Baker already look bad, uh, that he was overseeing a, basically an FBI narrative. Remember, even Joe Biden cited that 50 former intelligence officials said the laptop story in the New York Post had all of the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. He cited that in a debate. Um, and Did Baker sign that letter? Uh, that's a good question. That's a really good question. We should look at it right now. Um, not shocking. 
Yeah, that wouldn't be shocking at all. But the point is, he's overseeing um, this at the time. And Twitter decides to side with the intelligence community and say, because this looks like Russian disinformation, you can't even direct message it, let alone post it on our platform. Uh, and, and here comes Jim Baker once again, filtering. And per Elon Musk's tweet, actually potentially hiding and deleting evidence of malfeasance on the part of Twitter. Potentially, though, we, we, need, in, we, need, we need to see the receipts for Elon, because I'm reminded of just a couple weeks ago, he created an entire news cycle <laughs> around the idea that the App Store, uh, that Apple's App Store was going to take Twitter off for XYZ. Yes, yes. Because, you know, they don't like free speech or whatever. And then he visits with Tim, Tim Cook, Tim Apple, over Tim at Apple. Apple. <laughs> and that was wrong. Like, the, the most generous interpretation is that it was a miscommunication and that there was some might have been some automated message that that Elon Musk Elon Musk misinterpreted that's that's being extraordinarily generous uh, he, so he he spun this up now if if you are a Twitter employee a Twitter executive who oversaw a policy mm -hmm. that the incoming leadership doesn't like you are motivated to cover up what your role in that was like that's we don't know that they did that but that that is that, it, that clearly aligns the incentives against transparency. Right. Uh, and so you also certainly should have somebody who wasn't involved in the original decision-making vetting those documents. Yeah. And, I, and uh, I like Jack's point, why vet them at all? If you want to be transparent, you know, you can scrub people's phone numbers. Yeah. But, pu you know, publish, publish everything. That, forget, like... Do it like WikiLeaks style. All right, just WikiLeaks, just put it put it all up. And that's not how corporations tend to behave, and so they're running up against all sorts of send uh, Jim Baker culture. phishing link. Right. <laughs> See Tell, what happens. Don't change his password. I'm kidding. Um, Jim Baker did not sign on to the letter from the 50 right. former intelligence officials, but even more powerful Jims like Jim Clapper, right? <laughs> and Michael Hayden um, signed it, of course. Yeah, and this is this is an important story because we've also learned Yoel Roth, who was uh, at, clashed with Elon Musk, is now out of Twitter. Um, had been meeting with federal law enforcement agencies in the election year, and ultimately, again, we'd heard from Mark Zuckerberg that he'd had conversations with the FBI who said basically be on alert. Um, what we know is not that it was specific to the Hunter Biden story, but before the Biden laptop story dropped, they said be on alert for anything that could be Russian disinformation. The New York Post story drops and the former intelligence officials, 50 of them, come out and say, this looks like Russian uh, intelligence. It turned out, of course, that's not the case. Um, multiple news outlets have verified the contents of the laptop, not the entire contents of the laptop, but much of the contents of the laptop and much of the damning contents of the laptop that show, um, again, potential, really compromised, uh, uh, potentially compromising relationships. No, not even potentially. Very compromising relationships between Hunter Biden um, and business interests in other countries, including China. Um, and you can add others to the list. Obviously, everybody knows about the high-profile example of Ukraine, uh, but it's, it doesn't stop there. There's also like Mexico. Um, there's all kinds of stuff on there, and that's what he was doing when he was lobbying. And me meanwhile, we have discovered some uh, speech and assembly rights that Elon Musk is less supportive of, mm. and that is the janitors at Twitter headquarters who went, uh, went on strike protesting uh, for uh, better working conditions uh, recently. Uh, he responded by ending the contract with the striking janitors. Done. Mm -hmm. Just 
just struck him down. We have a and we have an element for that, right? Oh yeah, that's the that's the last one. Actually, the last two up yeah, there. Yeah, before um, you can actually see what B, it, it before looks and B like. five. It's a how it started, how it's going. Right. Uh, they form a picket line, and Elon Musk uh, just terminates them. Um, we do want to move. Uh, and and to, by the way, Elon yeah. Musk sort of famously anti-union, um, and so he's coming into yeah. a, a unionized workplace. But he's he's famously not allowed. Tesla workers to unionize, mm-hmm, right. and so that creates um, it's a it's obviously a huge culture clash for Silicon Valley on many many layers, um, yeah. and this is obviously <laughs> one of them. And I think he knows that he's aware of that and wants to be especially in these early days that have been frenzied and chaotic to say the least. He wants to make an example and to put his stamp on the company as the eyes of the world are sort of watching. And in the climate bill, he famously fought. Uh, uh, fought legislation that would have given subsidies to unionized electric vehicle companies, and with Joe Manchin's help, he was able to get that get that provision out so that all companies can get them. Yeah, uh, we do, we do have some breaking news and some really good news hmm. that we want to that we want to move to next. Uh, Brittany Griner has been released uh, from prison in Russia. Uh, the, I how I can't remember how she's been in for. Months, months yeah. at the, at this point, she's the WNBA basketball star since February. Since February, so yeah, nearly a year. Nearly a year. Uh, who was uh, leaving the like? She had played some games in Russia. Uh, was was leaving the country. She's in, in line, and at customs they pick they pick up a cartridge of of weed. Yeah, like vape oil. Vape, it, it some was, weed vape oil. Like yeah. just obviously for personal use. Right. Yeah. And they charge her with like trafficking and distribution. We'll we do that often here in the United States. That uh, where uh, you know if some, if somebody's a uh, you know a daily user of something, they're, they're going to have like a, a week supply or a two week supply with them, and we'll see that and we'll say, well, uh, that's trafficking. That's intent to distribute. Russia did the same thing to her, recognizing the geopolitical value. Of taking, you know, what amounted to uh, an American hostage, but moving her through the the Russian criminal justice system and saying, hey, you know, just this is this is our system is going to work it out. Uh, but she didn't have a weak supply. I mean, I think she had a very, I think she had a very small. Small. Well, a week, yeah. uh, you know, a weak supply can be pretty small too. Well, yeah. sure, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But like this is yes. obviously it's obviously for personal use. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Clearly. Uh, so and so, uh, according to uh, NBC News. Brittany Griner's wife, uh, Cheryl Griner, was in the Oval Office with Biden, and the two were able to speak with her by phone. Uh, that's according to a senior White House official reported by uh, Kyle Griffin here on, on NBC News. Uh, she was facing more than a 10-year sentence, mm-hmm. uh, and it was, uh, and, had been tr- and had recently been transferred to kind of a long-term prison. Yeah. Like, a penal the, colony. Yeah, just the, the, a, an absolute nightmare situation. Right. Like a Midnight Express, like, all all over again. So, yeah, this is breaking, like, as we are talking to— Except in Midnight Express, that that character was actually trafficking, like, significant amounts of heroin. Right. Like, this is just—this is nothing. Right, right. Like, a little bit of vaping. And so, yeah, as we were talking, the the White House posted a tweet um, where President Biden and Vice President Harris are in the Oval Office with Brittany Griner's wife. And President Biden says, or whoever tweeted this says, moments ago I spoke to Brittany Griner. She is safe. She is on a plane. She is on her way home. This is a deal that was negotiated um, with the release of an arms dealer. Um, oh, Boot, Victor Boot. Victor Boot, that's right. Uh, Victor Boot, uh, known as, quote, the merchant of death. 
Um, so the swap of him for Griner had been sort of in the works or part of this conversation since at least May is what we know. And the Biden administration here obviously was able to negotiate that. He was in the middle, I'm reading from Fox News right now, of a 25-year sentence in federal prison after he was convicted of conspiracy to kill Americans relating to the support of a Colombian terrorist organization. Yeah, and uh, I, I know a prisoner who was held with uh, Victor Boot, who's been uh, corresponding with me about this, and he said that Boot has been, and I, uh, I'll credit, credit Martin Gottesfeld who, uh, for this news, uh, Boot has been in extraordinarily bad health mm -hmm. um, in, in the CMU, I think he's been in Terre Haute, Terre Haute um, uh, which is a maximum security prison in which you know, uh, communications are heavily, heavily managed and limited. Oh, he's the Lord of War guy. Yeah, so he's, yeah, he's an arms, he's this global, globetrotting arms dealer uh, who was kind of blown up into this larger than life Mythical. Type, type of figure, yeah. uh, but when you when you look into him a little more, he's just kind of like a run of the mill arms dealer. <laughs> That's that like would would start would just your neighborhood arms dealer. Yeah, just neighborhood arms dealer. He, that would <laughs> the boy next yeah, door is that would you know that that would service uh, conflicts both and both sometimes both sides of conflicts uh, that the Amer the like military industrial complex or like the legitimate the, the legitimate above board arms suppliers. Were, were either legally or politically blocked from supporting. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so he would be used by intelligence services all over the world, uh, but also by, uh, you know, re rebels, by government forces. By, but like, like I said, he's like, he, he was blown up into mythical proportions when really he was just, a, just an arms dealer. And he's in failing health. And, and, and in failing health. I mean, maybe he'll go back to dealing arms, but it's not like, it's not like if you take an arms dealer out of the sky, all of a sudden, like, nobody has any way of moving arms. Like, somebody else is going to move the arms. So, like, if I, I don't know if anybody's going to criticize the Biden administration for giving up this guy. I don't think that allowing Victor Boot back into the world actually makes the world less safe. I think we're already in an extraordinarily unsafe world with, with uh, unchecked arms flowing all flowing across borders and this isn't gonna make it like that that's happening any faster especially uh if if the reports of his health uh ailments are are what they are it makes it even harder to kind of fly into these remote locations and make make your make your little arms deals the media's uh, coverage of Brittany Griner's situation uh, was, this was a huge story throughout the last year. I mean, throughout the last 10 months, it's been a, a huge focus of media attention. So just on a political level, a big win for the Biden administration. Again, I'm sure, I, I'm sure that he will get criticized for this, um, but uh, at least from the public relations perspective. You can see in the initial tweet from the White House where you have President Biden hugging Brittany Griner's wife and uh, you're saying we're bringing her home for Christmas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they feel like that's a big win. Yeah, I, it, it, it warms my heart. Like, it's great. I, like, it's, it was just tragic to think of somebody just completely innocent. So what, she smoked a little vape? Like, okay, like who cares? Uh, Vladimir Putin. Yeah, Vladimir Putin. And he doesn't, he, that guy doesn't. Like, it, it, it it just kills me to see like civilians caught up in this in this stuff. Um, to think of her like going to bed and waking up every morning in a penal colony mm -hmm. for uh, for utterly no reason. Yeah. Uh, so uh, if it if it takes uh, a sick Victor Boot go, going to some villa somewhere in Russia and living out his days there, or or you know, Victor Boot also has 
more enemies around the world, I'm sure. <laughs> you might have been safer in some ways. You really might in, have been. That's CMU. So we'll, you know, we'll see, we'll see how uh, post-prison life is for Victor Boot. I, I wouldn't guarantee that it's going to be just a, a day at the beach. So you were sort of casual about it, but I think your piece of reporting um, from the, some, the person you're corresponding with um, is really critical that he's in, in poor health. I haven't seen that in the national media reporting as international press as we've just been discussing this. It's, it's breaking, of course, but I hadn't seen that yet. Um, that seems to be a pretty critical piece of this puzzle. Yeah, and that was reported to me by, so his, his name's Martin Gottesfeld. He is, uh, he's serving a, he's a, a hacker accused of being a member of Anonymous who, uh, who went after um, Boston Children's Hospital during a, one of their fundraising drives in order, in, or, in order to protest the way that they were, uh, that they were treating uh, a young girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, so you, you can Google Martin Gottesfeld and, and read up on on the on the case that he was protesting, and so he's, and he was you know he was offered a a, a plea uh, that in, which would have had him out of prison by now. Uh, he refused it because he argued I I wasn't the criminal here. Boston Children's Hospital is is the one who was doing wrong. I was trying to raise raise awareness for this. Uh, he had hoped that Trump would would pardon him uh, if if he was appealing now to a tr- to Trump. With children's hospitals uh, less popular among the right, uh, maybe he would have done better. But uh, you know, saying that you hacked a children's hospital isn't isn't like a great first line when you're looking for a commutation or a pardon. Yeah, it's not an easy one. Uh, so in any event, he's he's serving out his time in a in a correct uh, in a in a CMU, uh, a communications management unit. Uh, he was in the same one as uh, he was as Victor Boot. He was also with Chapo. Um, he wrote a piece for the Intercept about. Uh, his time with uh, with Chapo mm-hmm. in the Brooklyn, I guess it was, I think it was the Brooklyn like federal prison there. Oh, I read, I read that. Yeah. Right. Well, let's move on to the immigration news uh, this week. It was reported first in the Washington Post that Senators Kirsten Sinema and Tom Tillis, so that's a Democrat and Republican respectively, have been kicking around a framework for a bipartisan immigration deal, um, which comes at a pretty crucial time for the Biden administration because Title 42 is set to um, expire, which is a big deal on both the left and the right. Title 42 is that Trump-era policy that allowed uh, the United States at the border to turn away people seeking asylum um, without a chance to enter the United States because uh, of the pandemic and because of the health concerns related to the pandemic. Now, the loose framework that is being circulated by uh, Senators Cinema and Tillis would include a pathway to citizenship for the Dreamers. That's two million of them. Um, and then there's roughly, this is per axis, 25 to $40 billion in increased funding for Border Patrol. That is a huge range. I'm not even sure that's helpful, the 25 to $40 billion, um, which would include a commitment to hiring more agents and increasing their pay. It would extend Title 42 until there's a formal plan in place to stop an expected surge of migrants at the border. Again, that's per Axios. And then the last bullet point in the Axios report, if you're watching, you can see it, uh, is just, this is my favorite, an overhaul of the asylum system to prevent abuse of the law. (laughs) The asylum system, to just say it's an overhaul of the asylum system to prevent abuse of the law, all of this, 
of all of those different bullet points, you can have a highly funded border patrol, you can have Title 42, you can give the dreamers a pathway to citizenship. If you don't overhaul the asylum system, this will mean absolutely nothing. And that's what's, uh, I think, been really misunderstood about Title 42, which sounds cruel, denying anybody entrance into the United States when they're claiming asylum, which means they're seeking um, refugee status. A lot of people have still been able to get asylum um, through different bureaucratic channels over the course of the pandemic. That has actually not stopped it. Um, but what Title 42, as it has been sort of floated, we're gonna, it's going to go. It's been working its way through the court systems. Um, what that does is bring more migrants onto the sort of pathway up through South and Central America into Mexico because cartels are telling them. There's an open disinformation campaign, a coordinated mm -hmm. disinformation campaign by cartels um, who use the we use the Title 42 basically as bait, as the potential end of Title 42 as bait. And they use these other bureaucratic channels that the United States government negotiates in different parts of Mexico. It's completely uneven, depending on where you are at the border. You could be in Tijuana, you could be in um, Matamoros or Reynosa, and who's getting through and why is totally different. And sometimes there's absolutely no rhyme or reason for it. People get different papers. Uh, I've looked at some of the papers in these border facilities. It just, it, Haitian migrants will get totally different papers um, from each other with different court dates, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we've seen a huge surge in, in immigration this year. We've seen a huge surge in illegal immigration. There's a stunning number of known gotaways. Um, the Biden's policy, Biden administration's policy is failing. They're nervous about the end of Title 42 because they know that it's going to cause an influx. There's already an influx because people are getting through these different bureaucratic channels. Um, sometimes it takes staying and sleeping in the streets in the border town for a little bit to be able to hire a lawyer. And as long as you can hire a lawyer, that's the sort of sentiment among migrants because it's correct, you can find a way. You can find one program or another to get into the United States. So I think an overhaul of the asylum system Sounds great. Um, the fact that this plan is being kicked around uh, with no serious ideas of what that overhaul would look like and it's just kind of more money, um, it seems unserious to me and it it's seems not, unlikely to pass anyway. Not, the overhaul, to tell me if this is what you've been gathering, the overhaul to me seems to be more, more facilities, more administrators, basically more staff in order to move people through faster, mm -hmm. coupled with they say more effective mechanisms for removal of people who who fail at the process. Because mm -hmm. right now, you don't really go through the process until years. Yeah. And if you fail at the process, you can pretty much stay. You like, can stay. I mean, unless unless something goes badly wrong for you. You can stay if you're, especially if you're in a sanctuary study, you can stay um, as long as you're not like on the wrong side of law enforcement. You're fine. And even if you're on the wrong side of law enforcement, as long as you're not too far on the wrong side right. of law enforcement, right. they're right. probably not going to yeah. get, get looped up in it. Um, from Progressives seem ambivalent about this entire thing because of the, the Title IV elements, um, but not totally opposed to it either. Mm. Uh, from now, the, the fact that Stephen Miller, for instance, is like losing his mind yeah. over it, I think probably ended up increasing progressive support for it. Like, mm -hmm. okay, well, if Stephen Miller thinks it's this bad, then maybe there's something in here, mm -hmm. you know, worth worth salvaging. And all of the money that, the one of the problems is that all the money spent, that would be spent to like staff up, mm -hmm. it's not clear they can actually staff up. Yeah, that's a good like, point. Trump added what, wanted, wanted to add what, 5,000 Border Patrol agents, right? Mm -hmm. He's added like 150 or something. Mm -hmm. 
like the, the number of people who can pass a drug test and who are otherwise qualified to serve as a, a border patrol in the areas where they need border patrol agents. Well, a border patrol agent want that job. just died but, yesterday in pursuit of people crossing the border. His ATV hit um, an object, hit a, I believe it was a fence, as he was in pursuit mm-hmm. of people who were running across the border. It's The border patrol job has gotten increasingly dangerous mm-hmm. um, because, again, coyotes are, they have industrialized these pathways like through the Darien Gap um, into Central America, then up into Mexico, and they have bought off law enforcement, the federales, all throughout Mexico, um, and that means they basically own certain checkpoints. Um, it means that this is an industrialized trafficking system, mm-hmm. and migrants who are desperate for a better life are coached on what to say to get asylum in the United States. And again, like it is heartbreaking to talk to folks who are in this situation and they are being preyed on by cartels. If you talk to them, they have dealt with attempted rapes, uh, actual sexual assaults. They have dealt with violence, kidnappings. Um, They have just been kidnapped and put in safe houses um, and then forced to sort of call call family to get money to be released um, and being used as human ransom by cartels. But the only way to cross now is by coyotes. There's some people who try to do it without um, and and if you, if you try to do it without— More dangerous to get caught by a coyote than a border patrol. One yeah. migrant uh, that I talked to over the summer, he got across after—and um, this is—I'll I'll talk about him in a second. He got across and called another reporter I was with in the middle of the night. He was in the United States and was terrified that the mm-hmm. cartels were on to him. Um, so this was like happening at 3 or 4 in the morning. And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this is because if just a couple of weeks ago, we can put up the next uh, element from this block, C2— Um, There was reporting, the Biden administration basically said, was going to begin deporting Cuban migrants uh, who had crossed illegally into the U.S. from Mexico on flights back to Cuba um, because they had secured an agreement with the Cuban government um, to take them back. Now, this person that I, this this particular Cuban migrant that I'm thinking of um, had been, he showed us a mark. It's always hard to verify the stories, but he showed us a mark actually on his shoulder. He had been beaten during the July 11th protests, not even for protesting, mm-hmm. um, but for going outside to watch the protest, raised a bunch of money, um, flew down into South America, made his way up through Central America, crossed twice um, and got sent back. And the first time because Cubans had no longer been able to stay under Title 42. Um, And that had happened the day before he crossed. Um, And he was so desperate to be in the United States. It's just incredible the the way our asylum system is broken, that funneling more money into it is not the answer. It would be helpful to be able to process more asylum claims. But the bottom line is our asylum law just needs more clarity. Um, because right now, it is really specific. You have to be fleeing prosecution from a particular group. Um, so that means you have to be fleeing basically like threats of political violence or you have to be fleeing because of uh, you know, racial discrimination, sexual discrimination, whatever it is. Um, and it creates this entire lack of clarity that you know you talk to all kinds of folks, a lot of the Haitian migrants that are crossing the the. Uh, border right now. Um, they're economic migrants. They, they haven't lived in Haiti since, in many cases, the earthquake of 2010. Uh, they've had fairly decent lives in Brazil and um, Chile and Mexico. They'll tell you this, um, but they're really desperate to get in America because they know that they can have even better lives there. And what's so sad is that there are people with immediate, urgent asylum claims um, that because the asylum system is so confusing and so easily, at, like, so, so easily um, gummed up 
um, with all kinds of different bureaucratic problems, there's just no way for people who need immediate refuge to immediately get it. Speaking of gumming up, if this doesn't get through in the lame duck, the chance that McCarthy brings it to the floor is basically zero. So it has to happen now. Yeah. What are the chances that, as far as you understand, of there being 10 Republicans? I could see some, Tom Tillis, who, yeah. who negotiated this with Cinema, obviously is one. So where do you get nine more uh, senators? Is it possible that there could be 10 Republicans on this? I tried to do the math and could only get to five or six that I think it, would be it, easy. That always seems to be, yeah, you can get to five or six Republicans, but right. getting past that is so hard. And I think that's why if you look at this, uh, the bullet points are a pretty sweet pot for Republicans already, like funding Border Patrol, keeping Title 42, and overhauling asylum. Those are three things that Republicans would really get on board with. It's the dreamers that'll just, be tough. Just to give two million kids, have been, people who've been here since they were two or whatever, like citizenship, that, it's that's their red line. It's like- it's, it's politically impossible for Republicans to do even for Even dreamers? Amnesty. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and again, this I is- I wonder, the, we keep saying, you know, Trump, what Trump showed- Trump is that, said he would give uh, yeah. amnesty to He the did, Jews. and yeah. Trump also showed us so many times that our understanding of what's possible and impossible politically is wrong. Right. You, you, well, you can't make fun of John McCain for getting shot down right. in the middle of a presidential campaign. That doesn't mean- Oh, turns out you can. This is what I'm going to talk about a little bit in my monologue, but like that doesn't mean national Republicans have internalized that lesson. Yeah. So yeah. I think- Well, if they're watching- angry. Wake, wake up, people. You, you, you'll be okay. Give, give the dreamers some citizenship. Get, get all your goodies. You can do it. Speaking of, uh, speaking of South America, uh, let's move on to Peru, where the country is in turmoil right now. They did their own little attempt at January sixth. <laughs> there, yeah. there are some, there yeah. are some parallels uh, because actually, the president who was ousted yesterday in a vote, a majority vote. It was like 101 out of 130 members. Um, he basically said this was a coup by investigations. He was mm -hmm. like, this is a new kind of coup. And that, we were talking before the show started, I was like, that that's pretty interesting um, because you see that really happening um, in the weaponization of special counsels now that's at a rate that seems incredible. Um, and you could maybe go back to Whitewater. Uh, you could probably go to Watergate sure. and <laughs> say something like that. But I think we're at, we're at a different level here. Um, and obviously it's not apples to apples, but right. the, that is the uh, one of the more interesting elements of the story is the, the president who was elected in that pink wave that got mm -hmm. a decent a decent chunk of media attention here in the United States, had been up to a lot of reforms, he increased minimum wage and, and tried to do all kinds of different things in Peru, um, was ousted by a majority vote yesterday amid all of these investigations into allegations of corruption, helping family members, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so this is Pedro Castillo, who was a, a, a poor campesino, uh, still to this day has, uh, or as of yesterday, had still had roughly the same approval rating out in the countryside in, in Peru. He had lost a couple points, but not many. It was in the cities. Uh, it was in the cities where his support really collapsed. South America uh, has the kind of re reverse left-right axis as, as we do here in Bolivia, for instance. Uh, the, uh, Evo, the support for Evo Morales and his, and his party and the new president, Luis Arce, all comes from the countryside. Uh, whereas the, the 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 wealthier cities are are the right wing elements, whereas we kind of have re re reversed that in a in a, in, in, a, in a way here in and in Europe and in some other industri uh, other industrialized Western countries. Uh, so Pedro, Pedro Castillo though was a populist more than he was a kind of an old school leftist. Mm. And if you're going to be a populist, you also have to be able to govern. Mm -hmm. And the, the the problem with uh, Populism, sometimes you get a genuinely authentic populist 
And what that can sometimes mean is that they have an enormous number of grifters kind of attached to them. And, uh, and his, his family and his inner circle were, in fact, now, every, every government is corrupt to some degree or another. Uh, the, the public has less appetite, uh, maybe ironically or paradoxically, for the type of petty corruption mm-hmm. that actually kind of ends up hurting the, the population, the public less, mm-hmm. uh, but is more obvious and in your face. Like, if you, like if you are uh, corrupt in, in the American way, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, you've got lobbyists who are pushing for trillion-dollar weapon systems mm-hmm. or mo- you know, multi-billion-dollar weapon systems that don't, that don't work within a, a trillion-dollar uh, Pentagon budget that can't be audited, yeah. that is going to cause a lot more uh, pain for the local population, the Americans, and also then around the world when they have to be used so that they can go make new ones. Uh, but that's kind of the legal, legalized corruption on a mass scale. It's it's when somebody gets caught with like fifty thousand dollars of cash in their freezer, right? That people really lose their minds. Or handouts to their family, like or you said, out, like really obvious, family. not convoluted, just like, clear cut um, personal corruption. And like his daughter got caught in a in a one of those petty corruption scandals. Police came to arrest her in the palace. Mm-hmm. She was able to like escape out of the palace. And then Castillo was like, yeah, real shame. We lost all of the surveillance equipment and we have no idea where her daughter is. It was like just clownish level uh, levels of things. But it is true that the right wing was like investigating him for the purpose of ousting him. This was the this was the third impeachment vote. They had come after him twice already. It is also true that in, in Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, was was the victim of a, a basically a right wing coup through the kind of judicial and, and legislative slash impeachment process. Like it, these these things are all true. Castillo though uh, was you know was was kind of guilty, <laughs> um, but like I said, everybody's guilty anyway. So he goes he goes on the air and he's like, look, we're <laughs> suspending the government. Right. We're declaring an emergency emergency government. I'm dictating. Uh, these are the things that I'm dictating. Use the word dictate. He's trying to get rid of the Constitution. Get, right. He's going to have a new Constitution. Uh, they're going to draw it together. And it just, it, 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 it was about as effective as Trump's effort on truth social to, <laughs> to suspend the Constitution. Uh, and the, he, the cops arrested him by the end of the day. He was replaced uh, by Dina Baluarte, uh, Peru's first female president. So girl boss win there. Uh, there you go. I'm kidding. I'm being glib. Um, but yeah. From a Marxist party. So maybe like now her, her problem is that she doesn't have any mandate. She, that's yeah, right. The, the, there's this huge question of whether she has any ability to govern whatsoever. The sixth president. Did we put Peru, up A1 here? In less than five years. Again, we did not cross the digital picket line to grab this. <laughs> Image the, we grabbed it before the picket line was was put up. If, so the the sixth president of Peru in under five years. I, I mean, just a stunning sense of turmoil in the Peruvian government. Um, it's it's hard for anybody to find a way to to calm that, let alone somebody who comes in without uh, any clear uh, sort of mandate in the legislative body. Yeah. So we'll we'll, we'll see where this goes from here. Uh, around around the world, we're also seeing all sorts of. Um, uh, or source of unrest. Haiti continues uh, continues to see its capital, Port-au-Prince. We can put up. I think. What do we have? It's a D two here. Yeah. Uh, continues to be divided into, you know, in, increasingly calcified, gang-controlled mm-hmm. areas as the United States continues to uh, support 
uh, an utterly illegitimate uh, interim president in, in, in the form of Ariel Henry, who has been credibly tied to the assassination of the former president, Jovenel Moyes. Uh, and as, as long as the United States is propping up uh, the, a president who has utterly no legitimacy with the, with the Haitian population and doing so, so that uh, we can send Haitian migrants back exactly. to Haiti. Exactly. Like, that's, that's the whole point. That's our deal with Henri. And the media is You may have killed the president. We may, we may have even known about it. But as long as you take Haitian migrants... You can stay in power. It's it's shocking how little attention in the press and in the government that deal uh, that we've talked to people here who have knowledge <laughs> of it, um, and it's exactly what's happening. Todd Bensman reported it out in the New York Post. Uh, he's a great immigration reporter, and he was saying like basically the agreement here is that if you continue to take Haitian migrants back, these are Haitian migrants who have not lived in Haiti for ten years in many cases. It, it's their worst nightmare to be sent back to Port-au-Prince, um, and uh, if if you will do that, Haiti, then that's the deal. We'll, right. we'll back you up. Right. Which we'll then, back up your government. Which then produces even more uh, instability, which then produces more migrants, uh, which then you know solidifies our support for the person that will take the migrants, who then, that then produces more migrants. Uh, and, the, and the question of the, the assassination of, mm -hmm. of Moise uh, con continues to royal Haiti. Uh, the Miami Herald has done some uh, tremendous reporting on it over over the months, and they have they have a new piece out. And we let's see if we can put this up. Um, there, there's this wild interactive. Uh, I, I really urge everybody to go check it out at MiamiHerald.com. Uh, it, it's basically like that Always Sunny in Philadelphia <laughs> yeah. uh, meme, yeah. it, except Pepe like Silva. totally real. And so what you yeah. can do is you can you can you can hover over particular figures. Um, Say like, uh, let's say, where's, where's Colonel Mike? We love Colonel yeah, Mike. Yeah, Colonel Mike just flashed across the stream. Yeah, we love Colonel Mike because Colonel Mike was also involved in the effort to assassinate Luis Arce, who we were just talking about. Who's the? Uh, he was the at the time going to be the incoming Bolivian president. He's now the Bolivian president. Colonel Mike. Colonel Mike failed. That's something we reported over at the Intercept that this same guy was uh, doing both. So you click on Colonel Mike. Uh, it, it tells you who he is. Uh, he's currently he's currently jailed in Haiti. But then it it, it gives you all the all the people that he is that he is linked to, many of whom, and you'll, you'll see over here in Triago uh, and CTU security, are are American-based kind of military consultant slash contractor types. It's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, except instead of Kevin Bacon, it's the Pentagon. Right. Yes. <laughs> uh, and then you have like you click on uh, jo Joseph Badio. This is a guy who was at the scene of the crime, mm -hmm. who uh, who called. Uh, Errol Henry multiple times. Yeah. Like, we're not making, like, massive conspiratorial leaps here to say that Ariel Henry was uh, potentially involved with the assassination of the last president. He was getting phone calls from the scene of the crime. Yeah. So, and... And, and American and, mercenaries yeah. were clearly, uh, are, are clearly implicated in what happened. Oh, American mercenaries, and then and then these Colombian mercenaries that uh, many of them uh, U.S. trained. Uh, yeah, the, the, the entire thing is... You know, just extraordinarily fishy. And extraordinarily sad uh, as Haiti continues to be, uh, and Port-au-Prince continues to be in gang control, uh, rival gang control. This tug of war is causing enormous suffering. Um, the reporting suggests the streets are just uh, disgusting. Uh, I believe the word that the, the Guardian used was putrid. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a mess, and uh, our role in all of it is uh, fuzzy. Right. Remains and, fuzzy. Yeah. Although we're supporting the guy who seems to have done it. Yeah, that's not fuzzy. Uh, speaking of coups, uh, in Germany, 
there were uh, a rest were made across the country in response to a uh, sweep, and we can put up D4 here, in response uh, to a right-wing coup attempt? Mm-hmm. What, what, did you, what did you make of this? I have absolutely no idea what to make <laughs> of this. This story is absolutely wild. You can see it through the New York Times there. Once Special- again, this was grabbed before the digital picket line. <laughs> Special forces in Germany have arrested 25 people, as per the New York Times, suspected of supporting a domestic terrorist organization that planned to overthrow the government and form its own state, federal prosecutors said on Wednesday. So these these are early morning raids. Um, Germany's special forces are are arresting folks. Um, Some people were arrested in Austria. Another person was actually arrested in as far away as Italy. Um, About 52 suspects here. So that's a pretty big orchestration. Uh, So this is, again, like I have absolutely no idea what to make of this. I think this is fairly new and we're we're going to learn a lot more about it in the coming days. Um, But this, the the European right, and I don't know that this is the right necessarily. It could be. They're saying it is, but. They're saying it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the European right is a a very interesting movement and it's like the country to country uh, kind of distinctions in the European right are often fascinating. Um, and I, frankly, I, you know, a lot of people pay attention to Hungary. A lot of people pay attention um, to, obviously, the UK and sort of the northern European countries, Spain and France. Um, but I have not paid much attention to, like, the, the populist right in Germany. Yeah, and, and they are, you know, severely handcuffed by the law, that laws, about, by, you know, anti, anti-Nazi laws yeah. that... Prohi- prohibit them creeping back into places that a lot of right right wing uh, elements elsewhere uh, around Europe or elsewhere around the world, you know, like like to creep into, and and so, um, so I don't know if this is a Gretchen Whitmer situation, I, I- <laughs> uh, or if this was like a real like attempt at a coup. Fifty two suspects. Fifty two. What what they round up in Michigan? Like a dozen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, a little. I think even a little higher. How many were? How many of those fifty two were? Uh, Informers. This, we gotta. We gotta find out. Like, <laughs> what was, was, that, was that, What was the FBI up to in Germany? Anyway, we'll see. Spe- uh, speaking of uh, uh, corrupt uh, former presidents, <laughs> the, the Trump Organization was found guilty of criminal tax fraud. We could put up. What is this? Uh, e one. Yeah, we covered this a couple of weeks ago, and it seemed pretty clear. Prosecutors were feeling good. They, they thought they case. had it. Yeah. Yes, they, they thought they had it to the point where I think even a key witness. I think they just moved on from having that testimony. Um, this is so the jury found uh, the the company guilty of federal tax fraud crimes. Um, and it, again, like this seemed pretty clear cut. I don't think it's really even surprising to big supporters of Donald Trump. I actually also don't think the Trump organization ever anticipated being um, being hauled into court for this kind of behavior, which is an interesting element of it that like, uh, and this is all over, you know, Alan Weisselberg's actions. The question is, was he doing it on behalf? I think he was the CFO, right? Is mm-hmm. he doing it on behalf of himself or the Trump organization, is it personal fraud? Or is it Trump organization fraud? Can you connect the dots? Obviously the jury thought that you could right. connect the dots um, and, and that I think is, is probably fair. But again, uh, this is a kind of, I feel like I would say this is just kind of soft corporate corruption that uh, you don't expect to get hauled into court for all of the time. It's fairly easy to hide. Um, and I don't think the Trump organization ever expected, uh, you know, obviously Donald Trump to win the presidency 
and have his his business deals sort of raked over uh, the right. The I think goals. probably most New York real estate uh, conglomerates could be caught. Uh, in some type of tax shenanigans. I think Trump has always made it clear he has less respect for rules than pretty much anybody. Yeah, he says, I I alone can fix the system because I've benefited from it. And so the the organization was found guilty on 17 counts of criminal tax fraud and falsifying business records, but the maximum penalty is only $1.6 million. So uh, look for some more uh, emails in in your inbox promising to match 1,000 times the <laughs> Trump organization because he needs $1.6 million to pay, to pay this off. They say that they're going to uh, appeal this. Um, here's a statement from the Trump organization. He said, the notion that a company could be held responsible for an employee's actions to benefit themselves on their own personal tax returns is simply preposterous. That, that, that might be true. Mm-hmm. What they had to prove is that the organization was central and you know, and complicit in in the arrangement that was that was benefiting the employees. So basically, right. what was going on is that the, the the Trump organization, through Weisselberg and perhaps others, was figuring out ways uh, to arrange its compensation so that it just so that it was uh, off basically off the books compensation for yes the the family and for other people associated with the the Trump organization, so that you get. If, if you get a uh, you know, free apartment, if you get free this, free that, yeah. then it doesn't show up on your tax returns. Yeah, so Weisselberg had already pleaded guilty. That's basically mm-hmm. what it is. But the, the Trump business entities did not. And so what was presented, for instance, this is uh, NPR called it some of the most attention-grabbing evidence presented to the jury, um, were documents with Trump's signature. So that included a rental agreement for a luxury apartment that Weisselberg used, a private school tuition check uh, for one of his grandchildren, and uh, Weisselberg then admitted he didn't declare the benefits as income. So you can see then connecting the dots to Mm -hmm. the Trump organization. Um, That's where the Trump organization says, this is just Weisselberg. And the jury obviously found this is a Trump organization arrangement. Right. right. So the Trump organization would say, look, our job is to pay people. Their job is to file their taxes fairly. Yeah. And look, hey, we paid, uh, you know, we, we paid his, grand, his grandkids' uh, tuition. We fully expected him mm-hmm. to pay the taxes on that. That's where the jury was like, no, you didn't. Yeah. Because... That's not how people normally get paid. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to, <laughs> if he wants to fund a thirty thousand dollar private school for his grandkid, you give him thirty thousand dollars, then he goes and funds that, and then he has to pay taxes on that. Uh, and so clearly, the jury was like, "No, ob- it, obviously, the reason that you were cutting this check was uh, so that." And maybe you, tr- maybe they tried, maybe they cut it as a. I didn't follow the details, but if they were being, trying to be extra greedy. They could they could pretend it was a donation to the school, yeah. And then and then there's a, a deal with like the principal that the, this kid gets you know no gets in tuition free, and then so then the Trump organization gets uh, the tax benefit from that. Weisselberg gets the tax benefit uh, for not having to pay taxes on his compensation, which basically gives you kind of half off of that tuition. Uh, you end up with a situation where this kid's getting a private school education basically fully subsidized by taxpayers. Yeah, and this was not reported to the state of New York or to the IRS. Right. Shocking. Yeah. So anyway. there you go. <laughs> Again, and I, listen, I don't, my beat is not New York real estate. It's not real right. estate either. More generally, I imagine this kind of thing is not entirely uncommon. 
Yeah. And that's, a, I guess, a and so, sad reality. We'll see, we'll, we'll see if uh, Trump's opponent, in the pres- potential opponent in the presidential campaign can make hay of this. No, they we can can't. Put up the next <laughs> element here. Uh, his, his opponent could be none other than John Bolton. Yes, speaking once again of coups, we've covered a lot of coups today, Ryan, um, and John Bolton hopes to plan another coup, this time in his own country. Roll E2 here. You've just made some news there. You are essentially telling us that you would consider getting into the 2024 race. Absolutely. I, I think I think to be a presidential candidate, you can't simply say, I support the Constitution. You have to say, I would oppose people who would undercut it. You know, we used to have a thing in the House of Representatives called the House Un-American Affairs Committee. I think when you challenge the Constitution itself the way Trump has done, that is un-American. Let's stay here for a moment. Just walk me through your thinking. What does your timeline look like? What would cause you to cross into saying what you're saying now and actually being a declared candidate for president? Look, all of the potential candidates know what Trump has said. This is no secret to anybody. I don't see why they aren't saying it right now. I, I think the, the voters, the Republican voters, people who choose the Republican nominee, nearly 95 percent disagree that Donald Trump is more important than the Constitution. I'm afraid there are some who would stick with Trump on this. What does a candidate have to lose by appealing to 95 percent of the base of the Republican Party? <laughs> No, his math doesn't check out. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. Um, John Bolton, what does a candidate have to lose by appealing to 95% of the Republican base? Um, the idea that any anti-Trump candidate, let alone somebody with the history of John Bolton, people forget so, so easily how hard Trump campaigned on ending endless foreign conflicts um, in 2016. He actually really didn't campaign too much on it in 2020, I think probably to his uh, detriment. A huge part of his campaign in 2015 against other Republicans and in the Republican primary was, and against Hillary Clinton. Uh, like, what, what is the difference in the foreign policy of Hillary Clinton and John Bolton? Somebody please tell me, because I'm sure we could uh, find so many similarities that would probably outnumber the differences. And Donald Trump campaigned uh, very effectively on the failed foreign policy of the United States that John Bolton has had a huge hand in. in including so, as a member of the Trump administration. I- including as a member of the Trump administration. And let us not forget one of the greatest quotes of in the history of neoconservatism from John Bolton when Jake Tapper in July during January 6th coverage, special January 6th coverage in the Capitol, he, goes, he says to, to John Bolton, one doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Yes. John Bolton says, I disagree with that as somebody who has helped plan coup d'etats. So good. Not here. And he actually said it more accurately. He said coups d'etat. Uh, not here. Coups d'etat. But you know other places. It takes a lot of work. And that's not what Trump did. It was just stumbling around from one idea to another. So Trump's greatest flaw that John Bolton thinks 95% of the Republican base uh, might go for, or a major Trump flaw at the very least, is he's just not good enough at planning coups. He doesn't have the attention span to plan effective coups. Got to learn from Biden. He just got Pedro Castillo, right? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot to that. The U.S. Embassy did put out a hilarious tweet uh, on Pedro Castillo saying, we urge the Peruvian people to remain calm. (laughs) Should do it. Not saying the U.S. led a coup. I mean... That seemed US pretty... Was, U.S. was glad to see Pedro Castillo. Yeah, but that's different than planning the, the coup. Yeah. It's a key <laughs> distinction. <laughs> I don't... I, yeah, I, I normally think any leftist leader that gets ousted is part of a coup. I, I don't think this is exactly a coup because he was just... Castillo was just so kind of brazenly over the top about some of the corruption. Yeah. So... 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, either way, uh, John Bolton's not going to be the Republican nominee for no, president. I feel so. very confident. Like, listen, pundits maybe, are... Maybe he's going to run as a Democrat. He would have better luck. Democrat. He yeah. would have better luck as a resistance Democrat um, going on MSNBC and CNN um, just talking about how terrible the man that he agreed to work for was. All right. And up next, uh, Daniel Ellsberg uh, says that he got, a co- he got a backup copy of the uh, documents that Chelsea Manning leaked in case... Something happened to WikiLeaks and they weren't able to publish them. He's now uh, daring uh, the, uh, the, the Biden administration to prosecute him, just like they're prosecuting uh, Julian Assange. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, uh, Stefania Morizzi, who is out with a brand new book on, uh, on Assange. She's a journalist who has probably spent uh, more or as much or more time uh, covering WikiLeaks and Assange uh, as, as anyone on the planet. Uh, so stick around for that. To talk about the latest news on the Julian Assange case, we're joined now by Stefania Moritz, who is an Italian journalist and the author of the new book, which is called Secret Power, WikiLeaks and Its Enemies. Stefania has been covering, uh, covering WikiLeaks and Assange uh, probably you know, longer and, and, and with as much depth as maybe any, any reporter on the planet. And we're glad to have her here, Stefania. Uh, welcome to Breaking Points. Thanks so much for having me. So we wanted, we wanted to start by getting your reaction to this explosive news from Daniel Ellsberg. And Daniel Ellsberg, obviously this, uh, famously the uh, whistleblower who revealed the, the Pentagon Papers, uh, said uh, this week that he, well, in fact, let's just, let's just play the sot from Ellsberg himself. Let me tell you a secret. Uh, I had possession of all the Chelsea Manning information before it came out in the press. Did you? Julian, I never said that publicly. Julian Assange had conveyed to me as a backup mm. in case his was, you know, they caught him and they got mm. everything. Mm. Uh, he could rely on me to find some way to get it out mm. if I felt. So I had all that. And when I say that, I'm saying that by the current standing of the Department of Justice, I am, am now as indictable as Julian Assange and as everyone who put that information out. The papers, everybody who handled it. Yes. I had copies of it, and I did not give them to an authorized person. So if they want to indict me for that, I will be interested to argue that one in the courts, whether that law is constitutional. The Supreme Court has never held that using the Espionage Act as if it were a British official secrets act, which I would clearly have violated, but if that, uh, using the Espionage Act as if it were an official secrets act, which has never been passed by our Congress, that uh, uh, that would be uh, criminal. They've well, never, never ruled on that. I'd well, be happy to take that one to the Supreme Court. Yes, yeah, so Stefania, uh, was, was this news to you that, uh, that Julian Assange had given a backup copy uh, to Ellsberg? Yes, and what do you make of his Espionage Act point? Yes, uh, first of all, it is new. I remember that at the very, very beginning when Julian Assange started publishing the first bombshell, and I know because I was already there. I was uh, basically my first time in which I uh, work as a media partner with WikiLeaks for my newspaper. I never work for WikiLeaks uh, as a collaborator. I have always worked with WikiLeaks as a... Uh, as a media partner for my newspaper. So back in 2010, I contacted Daniel Ellsberg and he told me how he was skeptical at the beginning when Julian Assange had contacted him and uh, he was thinking maybe they won't trap 
<laughs> want to trap some whistleblowers. So he didn't trust uh, this uh, WikiLeaks idea, this WikiLeaks project. But later on, when Julian Assange started releasing the collateral murder, the Afghan war logs, of course, Daniel Ellsberg felt uh, his uh, kinship with this project, uh, with uh, the Chelsea Manning, Julian Assange, and the WikiLeaks journalist. I think Daniel Ellsberg is saying something really important. First of all, he says uh, the Espionage Act should not be used as the official secret act. We know that in the U.S. there is no such a thing uh, as the official secret act, which allowed the, the U.K. authorities to go after reporters for publishing uh, state secrets. We know that in the U.S. the, the press uh, has such enjoys such constitutional protection, uh, thanks to the First Amendment, that uh, the U.S. authorities can couldn't charge reporters for publishing state secrets. And indeed, state secrets get published on a regular basis, basically. It's uh, what national security journalists do on, the, on a regular basis. So what, what um, uh, Daniel Erdberg says is really important. The U.S. authorities, especially the Trump administration, which charged Julian Assange, are trying to, to use the Espionage Act to to destroy the freedom of the press, the, the freedom of reporters to expose state criminalities at the highest level, like the one we have seen on collateral murder or like the, uh, the one we have seen on cables, on uh, Afghan war logs, Iraq war logs, torture. And they had abusing the Espionage Act to do this. And in addition to this, Daniel Ellsberg makes an important point. If they charge Julian Assange, as they have done, they should charge me as well. They should charge um, Daniel Ellsberg for receiving this document. They should charge us, the media partners. We have published the very same documents. They should charge John Young from Krypton, who published the uh, cables even before WikiLeaks. So the, this gives you an idea of how incoherent is this legal and judicial case against Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Yeah, I was actually just going to ask about your experiences in all of this, because last week, uh, the editors and publishers of several major publications, The Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, Der Spiegel, and El País, published a letter uh, saying, even though they have concerns about some of the ways the information was uh, made public by Julian Assange, it's a, a huge threat to press freedom. Um, and there's some pictures that we can put up here, G4, some great images uh, of Yusufania with Julian Assange um, that were taken over the course of your reporting. Uh, one of the reasons we have that lower image is probably of interest to some of the listeners and the viewers. Um, tell us, Stefania, how, how your, just your interactions with Julian Assange um, are wrapped up in this and, and you know, your fears of maybe whether or not you could have ever pursued this course of reportage, this uh, journalistic inquiry, if the, the crackdown, uh, the full crackdown that a lot of the political establishment wants to bring upon Julian Assange ever happened? Yeah, thank you for this question, because I have, uh, I can bring my experience. I have been there for the, from the very beginning, even before collateral murder, even before they became famous. So, I mean, even before uh, the large majority of mainstream media were interested in WikiLeaks. And, and I can tell you why I, I started looking at them. I started looking at them 
first of all, because one of my sources had started uh, stopped talking to me. And I, at that point, I decided I needed better source protection because clearly the old fashioned techniques uh, which we, we journalists use in uh, our newsroom are no longer suitable in this uh, era of mass surveillance. So I wanted to learn from them how to use cryptography to protect my sources. I am a mathematician before journalism. I got a degree in mathematics, so I knew that it was possible. I had the theoretical knowledge, but I was unable to use it. So at that time, one of my sources in the field of cryptography told me, you should have a look on that bunch of lunatics. And the lunatics were Julian, Julian Assange Wikileaks. And they, the reason why my source put Wikileaks on my radar screen was that Wikileaks was the only media organization in the world using cryptography, um, systematically cryptography to protect journalistic sources. Not even the New York Times, not even the, the most powerful newsroom in the world were using uh, cryptography back in 2006 2007, 2008, when Wikileaks was was uh, starting doing this, so they they were pioneering this uh, cryptography, and I was very very interested in in this. But in addition, I was really interested. What was what really impressed me was that they were able to obtain documents that no other media organization was able to get it to get, and uh, not only that, they were able to. Publish. They had the courage to publish. For example, when the Pentagon asked them to remove a document about the Guantanamo task force, the military task force operating Guanta the Guantanamo de detention camp, they said no. They refused to remove the document. So for me, it was really, I mean, it was really something very important because I'm sure you remember that after the 9-11, there was such conformism. There were, so the media were almost publishing whatever the CIA or the Pentagon were <laughs> saying with very, very few noble ex exemptions like Seymour Hersh, who exposed, the, you know, the the uh, uh, Abu Ghraib uh, torture and so on. But it was a widespread conformism. And so for me, it was really important to see that there was a media organization able to get these documents because clearly this uh, cryptography uh, appealed to a community who had important documents and they disagree with the, um, with the Bush administration. They disagree with this atrocity. They disagree with the, this brutal treatment. And they came out of the dark because they trusted this uh, security process, these uh, security um, procedures uh, provided by WikiLeaks. And right. they and wanna... were, encouraged to pub were encouraged to provide documents because WikiLeaks published them, you know? Stefania, I want to quickly get to a couple of the revelations in your book. One, uh, you have a letter, if we could put up G3. Uh, this is, so Julian Assange, That you have a letter with him, him reaching out uh, you know, to, to basically government sources saying, look, we'd, we'd like to uh, co cooperate. We want to, we want to, our objective is to publish the maximum amount of information that's in the public interest, but we want to make sure we do this safely. Uh, and they respond to them, uh, no, uh, just take, we're not, we're not discussing this with you. Just take, just take, don't publish anything and give the documents back. Then you also have uh, records that show that the Guardian was able to speak directly with the U.S. With the US government and, 
and work cooperatively with the U.S. government to get say, hey, please redact this. Let's don't don't publish this. Uh, the Guardian not prosecuted. Assange prosecuted. Can, can you can you spell a little of that out? Yes, I mean, you have to realize that they have been fighting to get this, the full documentation on the case for the last seven years. I have been litigating my FOI requests in the US, in the UK, in, the, in Australia and Sweden, because four governments are refusing to release these documentations and uh, this documentation. And some of them admitted that they destroyed key documents about this case, which is high profile, which is highly controversial and which is really, really important when it comes to press freedom. So it is very suspicious that they destroyed key documents and they have refused to provide any information on why they destroyed these documents. And so those um, those uh, emails that you mentioned were internal emails by, um, from the State Department, which I obtained after suing them in the U.S. And they clearly showed that they, the U.S. authorities had the double standard. They, while they were using, uh, while they were willing to provide assistance to the mainstream media to have a dialogue with them and to help to redact the documentation, especially the cables, that documents are referred to the cables. Uh, and while Julian Assange tried to do the same, tried to contact him, uh, tried to contact the State Department to ask for assistance, to ask for any suggestion, whether they could suggest any name that they should have redacted. And the State Department refused, absolutely. They didn't want any dialogue. They didn't want any, provide any help. They didn't, and they asked WikiLeaks, uh, uh, please uh, send back all materials you have, stop publishing and uh, uh, remove from your website. I have the very same correspondence with the, um, about the Guardian meeting at the highest level, the, the Guardian uh, editors uh, at the highest level of their newspaper meeting the State Department of Authorities. At no point they ask, stop publishing, stop, um, uh, stop revealing these documents, uh, giving us whatever you have back, remove from the Guardian website. So, I mean, this uh, double standard makes you ask, make prompt you ask yourself why they behave like, like this. Clearly, they wanted to pursue, prosecute WikiLeaks from the very beginning, or maybe they hope that someone would die as a consequence of these publications so that they could blame Julian Assange and WikiLeaks of having blood on their hands. Maybe they, they wanted so. I mean, that was, otherwise, why not to provide assistance? Otherwise, how, why not have such dialogue as they did with the, with the New York Times, with The Guardian, with the other yeah. newspapers? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think your conclusion is disturbingly uh, plausible. Uh, Stefania Marizzi, an investigative journalist, uh, the book is called, if we can put G2 back up, the book is called Secret Power, uh, WikiLeaks and its Enemies. Con congratulations on, on the publication. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Absolute yeah. pleasure. I can't wait to read that book. All right, Ryan, what is your breaking point today? Well, it's not often that an article in a quarterly trade publication dedicated to organizing can set off a major conversation. But a new piece by Maurice Mitchell, who's head of the Working Families Party, has done just that. The piece has a deceptively mundane title. It's called Building Resilient Organizations. 
but the content of it speaks a whole series of truths that until recently have been essentially off limits in progressive spaces. For some context for viewers who aren't deeply involved in progressive politics, it's important to know that WFP has often been criticized by some inside the movement for being too committed to identity politics and what some people derisively call wokeness. So to have these criticisms coming from the WFP and from somebody with impeccable uh, progressive credentials like Maurice Mitchell has forced people to stand up and take notice. Now, Maurice, in a video that accompanied the piece, said that it was written in collaboration with people across the movement. And I can confirm from speaking to people who helped in the editing and drafting that it was indeed widely circulated before it was published. Here's Maurice. Article is kind of like a love letter to organizing more than anything else. Yeah, so I'm the principal author of the article. However, this article has dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of contributors. This is the summation of consultation, conversations, several edits that included the feedback of many, many leaders, including folks in our staff union at Working Families Party. Like this is the summation of all of those inputs. So Mitchell has also told people that the piece built on some of the things I outlined in my June article uh, in The Intercept on meltdowns inside progressive organizations. And you can hear some echoes of it while Mitchell, Mitchell also forges ahead with some new observations. So he breaks the piece down into what he identifies as 10 common destructive trends and the fallacies behind them, followed by solutions. The whole article is worth a read, but I want to highlight a few of them here. So he goes right for the jugular in the beginning with his first identified trend, not pulling any punches with his description of what he calls, quote, neoliberal identity, unquote, which he calls, quote, using one's identity or personal experience as a justification for a political position. You may hear someone argue, as a working class, first generation American Southern woman, I say we have to vote no. What's implied is that one's identity is a comprehensive validator of one's political strategy, that identity is evidence of some intrinsic ideological or strategic legitimacy. Marginalized identity is deployed as a conveyor of a strategic truth that must simply be accepted. Likewise, historically privileged identities are essentialized, flattened, and frequently, for better or worse, dismissed. He then critiques it by saying, people with marginal identities as, are, as human beings suffer all the frailties, inconsistencies, and failings of any other human, genuflecting to individuals solely based on their socialized identities or personal stories deprives them of the conditions that sharpen arguments, develop skills, and win debates. We infantilize members of historically marginalized or oppressed groups by seeking to placate or pander instead of being in a right relationship, which requires struggle, debate, disagreement, and hard work. This type of false solidarity is a form of charity that weakens the individual and the collective. Finding authentic alignment and solidarity among diverse voices is serious labor. After all, steel sharpens steel. Neoliberal identity politics strips from identity politics a focus on collective power or a political project and demand. What's left is a narrow tool used as a personal cudgel or, as Barbara Smith has said, quote, it's like they've taken the identity and left the politics on the floor. It should be noted that we have already seen this tactic used against us on the left and the right in the fight for racial and economic justice. Identity in this context reaffirms the individualistic principles of neoliberalism instead of challenging them. So Maurice also identifies, quote, anti-institutional sentiment as something that he calls, quote, reflexively disdaining institutions and organizations as inherently oppressive and antiquated, including the institution one may be associated with. This point of view casts institutions themselves as the problem, even those with a social change mission. 
And so he responds to that by saying, quote, organizations and institutions are political vehicles. They are also spaces where individuals develop skills, connections, and ideological alignment. Institutions transmit knowledge, hold strategy, and cultivate power. Atomized individuals that loosely assemble cannot do this at the scale needed to take on entrenched power, unquote. Now, half the viewers watching this right now might be stunned at how obvious these insights might appear. Yet it also took courage to say them, which is itself a depressing testament to the cultural paralysis at the heart of progressive organizations right now. Now, with his fifth observation, called, quote, cherry-picking arguments, he takes on the way that people throw around the terms intersectionality or white supremacy in incoherent ways. For, he writes, for example, using the term intersectionality to, let's say, defend edits to a press statement, or employing the Audre Lorde quote, caring for myself is not self-indulgent to give gravitas to a desire to stay home from an action or take, to take off time that you've earned and deserve as a worker or arming yourself with the concept, quote, small is all, from, a, from Adrian Marine Brown's emergent strategy framework outside of its global fractal context to resist taking responsibility for a larger scale intervention or growing your community group into a mass organization. This ten tendency presents itself in language as well. Certain phrases and words carry cultural currency and cachet, he goes on. We often find words like revolutionary employed non-ironically in the service of bourgeois individualistic demands. Decontextualized or uncritical use of intellectual material, like the Tema Oken essay on white supremacy culture, has at times served to challenge accountability around metrics and timeliness on the use of written language. Yet metrics and timeliness and the ability to communicate in writing are not in and of themselves examples of white supremacy, Maurice Mitchell writes. And so uh, when, when, you, when you hear something like this coming from a, a real leader in the, in the progressive movement, All right. Well, well, what's your point today? Well, as expected, Raphael Warnock eked out a 51-49 win in the Georgia Senate runoff on Tuesday. No small feat ever for a Democrat in a red state like Georgia. So you can add Herschel Walker to the list of Republicans who've lost Georgia Senate races since 2020. Walker, David Perdue, and Kelly Loeffler all landed right around 49% of the vote, as did Donald Trump actually in 2020. 49 is the magic number. Purdue was the former CEO of Dollar General, whose prior career involved heavy outsourcing. Leffler is also a C-suite denizen whose net worth hovers near a billion dollars, thanks in no small part to her husband, who chairs the New York Stock Exchange. Trump and Walker are both rich and famous too, although for various reasons promoted populism a bit more persuasively than Purdue and Leffler. No matter, none of those four are slam dunk candidates, that's for sure. Walker's loss is reigniting the, quote, candidate quality narrative in Beltway circles. What explains Brian Kemp winning 53% of the vote in his re-election bid against Stacey Abrams? Why did Tim Michaels underperform Ron Johnson? Why did Don Bullduck underperform Chris Sununu? And what the heck is going on in Florida and Arizona? We've said repeatedly here that Republicans like Brian Kemp and Ron DeSantis are bridging that gap between pro-Trump rural populist voters and Trump-weary suburbanites. This is very difficult to do, but it's not impossible. We disagree on a whole lot, but former McConnell chief Josh Holmes of Ruthless made a similar point after Herschel Walker lost. Quote, one, thing's one thing Republicans need to understand, the new-ish coalition of simply swapping rural working class for suburban R 
ours works on paper. Hell, it works in presidentials. The turnout discrepancy in midterms is significant. Need to either fix the rural midterm turnout or mix the appeal, he tweeted on Tuesday, adding, quote, rural versus suburban is not a mutually exclusive appeal. Brian Kemp did it in GA. Ron DeSantis did it to historically significant margins in Florida. Anyone who tells you Republicans need to excise one part of a coalition for another is prescribing a destiny of losing four generations. Here's what the consultant class is both unwilling and unaware enough to consider. When your alternative to John Ossoff is a guy who outsourced American jobs, you might lose. We all know the problems with Michaels and Mastriano and Bull Duke because the consultant class that loves Martha McSally would prefer to focus on the problems in MAGA world. But MAGA world only exists because of the consultant class. Again, most Republican primary voters in 2016 actually picked someone other than Donald Trump. He is loved by a chunk of the GOP base and then tolerated by some of it. The math barely checks out in presidentials, as we've seen twice, and clearly doesn't check out in midterms. The electoral failures of MAGA do not vindicate the electoral appeal or the platform of the establishment GOP. Rewinding the clock, but adding a populist gloss, see Dr. Oz's weird campaign, is just not the answer, just like crazy people aren't the answer either. What's happening right now shouldn't totally depress conservative voters, though. It's kind of the natural result of voters pushing their party to transition, and that won't be clean and easy in a country that's under major transition, too. These races are also not easily nationalized. What we're seeing is just this tug of war, and that's perfectly normal. Now, I know it's asking a whole lot for politicians to believe in anything, so I won't do that. But Republicans can't just talk about the border and China, then sit back and support, say, Mitch McConnell's leadership as he lets Democrats and members of his own party pass bad bill after bad bill without even mounting much of a fight. What's the Republican plan to lower health care costs and increase health care quality? What's the Republican plan to reform asylum laws so that we can undercut cartel trafficking, secure Americans, and make space for refugees? What's the Republican plan to make housing more affordable, to boost stagnant wages, to fix schools, to reform the Pentagon, to deal with the mental health crisis, the obesity crisis? How can they help cities beyond just firing radical prosecutors? You can talk about inflation and woke education, sure, but for the past 20 years, even as material comforts have expanded, American happiness has dipped. That does not demand the old playbook. It demands something completely different, even if it's based on the same principles. Republicans aren't talking about some of these issues, and even when they are, they aren't offering actual alternatives that voters take seriously, nor should they, for the most part. Right now, some 10 Republican senators are reportedly considering a bipartisan immigration bill that could well make the border situation even worse. It doesn't matter if you're Martha McSally or Herschel Walker. If you can't answer those questions in a way that makes sense to voters, Republicans will continue picking people like Tim Michaels, like Blake Masters in primary races. Because if you're asking people to choose between someone molded into shape by a a consultant cookie cutter and someone who's promising to metaphorically blow DC up, a whole lot of people are going to vote for the explosion and a whole lot of people are just going to stay home. Great place to end. <laughs> this is perfect. All right. Very happy, little happy, th- happy Thursday, everybody. Don't, <laughs> don't read the New York Times. 
in solidarity. Uh, or we'll see just you next ever. Yeah. <laughs> we won't be back. We, did, we gave you two shows this week, so there'll be no counterpoints. Uh, Friday, Crystal and Sagar will be back next week. They're out on their, their live tour right now. I got a complaint that they didn't hit the West Coast. I, I consider this now me relaying that to them, uh, oh. but I'll relay it to them personally. They're on notice. Uh, we'll, we'll be back next week, and so will Crystal and Sagar. Thanks, everybody, for watching. I'm Ryan Grimm, Emily Jashinsky. We'll see you then. See you later. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.